Today's scripture reading is from Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 18. In addition to your own Bible, you may find it on the back side of your message notes or beginning on page 471 in your worship Bible. Please follow along as I read. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with, with, the, with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see? This is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I ap applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Beverly. Appreciate that uplifting scripture reading. Isn't that the most depressing part of scripture you've ever read? What's the purpose of life? You live, you die, it's all over. What's it all about? Now, we kind of joke about that, but that's really a very serious and poignant question. What really is the purpose of life? Is there any intrinsic meaning to our existence? You know, modern culture generally speaks about the beginning of life as an accident, right? Modern culture and a lot of people believe that are, we're here simply because of a chance combination of molecules that happened many years ago, and there was no God a part of it at all. We just happened by chance. Modern culture believes that often, and modern culture often teaches that life will just end, and we know that all physical life just sort of ends ultimately in a whimper or, fro or it freezes up or it blows up or, or something. Uh, and yet, what about us in the middle of it? Is there an intrinsic 
meaning to life? Is there something real and foundational about this is not just a a problem for the preacher or the teacher in Ecclesiastes, this famous book of wisdom, but this is a fundamental philosophical problem. And it's a problem that every human being faces. Most of us don't think about it much. We cover ourselves with activity, just doing whatever comes next, but we don't quite find out what is it really all about. How many of you guys have ever heard of the game Settlers of Catan? Or Catan? Oh, my goodness. I'm over two. I thought, well, I won't talk about baseball today since none of you guys know anything about it. I tried that last week. I may, it may come up by accident uh, during the course of this message. Well, there's this board game. How many of you have ever played any kind of board game? Monopoly. There you go. All right. What do you play? What kind of games you guys played? Monopoly. What else? Scrabble. Okay, good. What else? Clue, yes. Parcheesi, yes. All right. Very good. Rummy Cube? Strip Poker? What? No, I'm teasing. Rummy Cube? All these games. Well, my wife and I and our, our kids got us into this is a game called Settlers of, of Catan. It's kind of, a, it's kind of a, a, a very interesting game that we kind of enjoy doing. But anytime you play a game, you have all this stuff that happens. You, take, you, you open up a box. You take the stuff out of the box. You do certain things with the stuff in the box in order to win the game the box is playing, right? And what do you do when it's all said and done? You put it all back up, you put it back in the box. What was really the point of Monopoly? It was to kill a few hours. And of course you wanted to win. That was important, right? But why ultimately it doesn't have any intrinsic meaning. Is that true about life? Is there anything really important and fundamental of life? What is the meaning of life? It's, the, it's a simple question, but it has perplexed people, both ancient and modern, for centuries all along. If life is like a board game, is life like a board game filled with activity, but ultimately meaningless? The writer of Ecclesiastes seems to think so. In all that he writes virtually, he's writing for us not really to try to give us answers, but to get us to ask important questions. Often the really important way that you teach people is not just by giving them answers, but helping, helping them to ask the right kinds of questions. So in this book, the writer of Ecclesiastes, sometimes called the preacher or the teacher, but really a better translation would probably be the word philosopher, the philosopher is trying to get us ask the question at the surface of the very essence of our existent, existence. What's it all about? What's the meaning of life? And he begins to explore various options and begins to try to show us that really, if we're not really careful about how we ask this question, we will not be able to cover, come up with any bona fide, true, important meaning to life. So in this book, he tries to help us to see uh, how much there is to ask about life, and he then points to or hints toward an answer to his question. But truthfully, Ecclesiastes is not so much a book of answers as it is a book about important questions. So it's a book of wisdom speaking about tough philosophical questions. So I want you to take a look at this with me under three very simple headings. headings. The first is this. He talks, first of all, about the quest for meaning under the sun. The quest for meaning under the the sun. Look at uh, 
Look at verses 1 to 3 as a, as a book opens. I had Beverly read the first chapter for you. It's actually about a 12 or 13 chapter book. I think 12 chapters maybe. The words of the preacher or the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now, some of the newer versions of the Bible use the word not vanity, but rather meaningless. Some of you have that in your Bibles, right? Meaningless. Meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What's the meaning of life? So, I'm taking that as my idea with it here. So, let's talk about the quest for meaning. See, the reality is having meaning or purpose in life is uh, of, of great importance. If I were to say to you, for example, um, uh, and I want to say to you, um, all right, Cheryl, where are you, Cheryl? You're hiding. Okay, Cheryl, I want you to go stand over on the corner uh, of, of Tom Darlington and Carefree and Cave Creek Road uh, for the, uh, from 2 o'clock to 4 o'clock on Thursday afternoon. What's she going to say to me? Why does she need to know? It's in our human nature to ask why. Well, if we ask what, are we, what is the reason for, our, for standing on a street corner at 2 o'clock on Friday on Thursday afternoon, how much more important is to say, what is the reason I'm living and breathing? What is the reason I'm doing what I'm doing? What is the ultimate meaning of my life? We are people who want to know why. The great Christian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky once wrote, he said, if you want to utterly crush a man, just give him work that is of completely senseless, irrational nature. And of course, Viktor Frankl in his famous book, Man's Search for Meaning, I'm sorry, to be, this is kind of a philosophical sermon, sorry, that's what the book's about, I have to do it. Uh, a great philosopher who started a, 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 a therapy called Logotherapy, uh, who was imprisoned during the Holocaust, uh, and all of his family except for him died during the Holocaust, he wrote an important book in 1946, just after coming out of that, called Man's Search for Meaning. A lot of you have heard of it, you've heard it referenced as well. And he spoke about an incident that occurred for him, he said, Work and I put, took this out of his book. Workers were forced to dig piles of dirt and move them with wheelbarrows over to another part of the camp. Then the next day, they would be forced to move all that dirt back to where it had been the day before. Then the next day, they would be forced to repeat this same meaningless task and so forth. This was psychological torture, and it drove some of the prisoners mad. And he wrote later, I can survive any how as long as there is a, a why. Yeah. And when I first read that passage, I was put in mind of a trip I took back when I was in high school, just out of high school, down to Ensenada, a mission trip, where my friend Chris and I had been given a task. They didn't have good sewage there, and so they had a, a trash system, so they had to bury their trash. And so we spent a whole day digging a 12-foot by 12-foot by 12-foot by 12-foot hole in the ground. We just spent the whole day, I mean, it had already been started. We just dug that the whole day over, long and long again. It was tedious, boring, hard, not fun work, and all that was going to happen was going to hold trash. But we didn't mind it. Why? Because we understood why. We're building, we're doing something that meant something. We have insatiable quest for meaning. And so the writer of, of, of Ecclesiastes is trying to talk about the quest for meaning, and he's decided that, that everything is essentially meaningless. 
What reason is for my toil? And then we see the phrase at the end of the verse, under the sun. Under the sun. And this phrase is used many, many times. This phrase, under the sun, is used. What is he talking about? This is, he's speaking about if this is all there is, what's it all about? Under the sun, everything you can see. If the only things in life are the things I can see and touch and feel and breathe, if that's all there is, what's the point? If What is the point of all of our labor if there's nothing more than the molecules that we see and breathe? If there's not a, if there's not a, a bigger, deeper, grander, a broader reality in which this reality lives. That's what he's saying. The under the sun is critical to understanding this book. When he talks about all the things he talks about, he's talking about them as if they're the only thing in the world. And it doesn't really, it doesn't really matter. And, and that's really what a lot of people think about life, don't they? A lot of people think all there is is what you can see and touch and taste. If you can't put it in a test, put, test tube, if you can't study it scientifically, biologically as well, it's not, it doesn't exist. I mean, you might have a personal belief in a God. That's okay. You're allowed to have that. Just keep it to yourself. Don't bother us, Okay. Yeah, I can see why some people would think that. Some people would say it's vestiges of superstition. Some would say, well, it might very well be true, but we can't know. We can't. So we really build a whole culture under the sun. We say we can't know. Everyone's got a right to their personal beliefs, but all we know is what is under the sun. But if that's all that there is, what's the point of it all? That's Ecclesiastes' question. We have a quest for meaning. Is there any hope for a truly meaningful life if there is no God above the sun, the writer of Ecclesiastes says to us, no, no. And surprisingly, many philosophers of today agree. Contemporary philosophy agrees the same. So let's look secondly then at the mirage of meaning under the sun. The mirage, we looked at the, you know, the quest for meaning under the sun, but now let's look at the mirage of meaning under the sun. And so what he begins to do throughout the remainder of this book, all 12 chapters basically of it, is to begin to explore all the potential answers to what life is about if God is not a part of my life. All the potential answers to what life is about if all the life exists of is what is under the sun, okay, within the solar system itself or within, you know, the, the, physical, the physical world. And he talks to us about various things, and I'm just going to touch on a few of them because a lot of you, I hope, are going to be reading Ecclesiastes this week. He's, he basically goes through a checklist of many of the things that he tried to do to look for meaning apart from God. And he says they all end up meaning nothing. And the first and perhaps the most important one he talks about here in the 12th to the 14th, uh, the 14th verses. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. See that phrase again? It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all that is vanity and striving after the wind. Ever tried to chase the wind? Ever as a kid try to catch a, a leaf that was blowing and the faster you went, the further it went? That's the image there. The faster you go, the more it goes, the more it, more it eludes you. Yes, there is a few, and what he's speaking here is he applied myself to wisdom. I applied myself, and we might say here, I applied myself to philosophy. 
And so he understands here the futility of philosophy if there is no theology, right? The futility of philosophy without a personal God separate from the universe, from whom came the universe, not coterminous with the universe, but building and making this universe. And, and so, uh, you know, and so there are many people today from philosophical point of view that themselves say, well, we'll find some meaning without God. We'll find some meaning without God. So we have, for example, the answer of the humanists will say, let's improve the world despite how short life is. Let's just do what we can to improve the world despite how short life is. But the problem is there's no way to make an ultimate difference in the world. Why? Because the game always goes back in the box. You know, my wife and I have been playing this game, Settlers of Catan, and I hate to say this, but she usually wins. And she says it's just luck, but I know it's not true. She's just better at it than me. But the best thing about that game is when it's all said and done, it goes back in the box, and I'm the boss again. And I can control the remote control like every husband should, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it, and that's the problem with, with thinking, that, uh, that it, it just, we just try to improve life. Uh, and here it says, it, it basically says uh, in verses, uh, I didn't write the verse down, let me see if I can find it. Yeah. Uh, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains uh, uh, forever. I'm reading in the fourth verse. Um, the sun rises, the sun goes down, hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, goes around to the north, around and around goes wind, and on its circuits the wind and trees, all streams run to the sea, etc., etc., etc. Everything just goes on. Let me ask you this question. How many of you can name... How many of you can name the first and last name of each of your great-grandparents? Yeah, I figured there were going to be one or two. Seriously, how many of you really can? The first and three. All right, there's 100 of us here today. 3% of us, if that, can name, and I can't. I don't even know if I can name the last names of my, all my great-grandparents, you know? Uh, and, you know, we say we live on through our children, <laughs> But our great-grandchildren are not going to remember you. They're not going to remember you. They're not going to know your first name, your last name. They're going to have the same ignorance about you that you have about your great-grandparents. Yes, life is such a short breath, and it's, it's gone. And what difference does it really make? You know, I go to funerals a lot, perform a lot of funerals, and I constantly get this, and I never say it in the funeral. I wouldn't. But they live forever in our memory. They don't. They don't. If you just have a humanistic approach to life, it's a pretty bleak picture. It all just goes back to the box, and the box ends up in the trash can. How many things have you saved for your life that you have a hard time getting rid of? How many of you have had to take things out from dead parents as I have and see those things that were so meaningful and so important, and they really were? But at the end of the day, it, it, so the preacher means to depress us. <laughs> but it, you need to be wise about this. Either there is a God over whom this world exists, to whom we ultimately go, through whom this world is held together, who makes this world make sense somehow, or else it's nothing more than the photograph you finally throw away because you don't even know who's in it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, there's a, a line in Les Miserables when they're getting ready. It's a beautiful little song. I thought about singing it for you, but I, but I won't. Uh, but there's a line before the, before the, the men are going to go to the battle, the young men are going to go to the battle, and they, they know they're probably, this is their last stand, they're probably going to die. And they, uh, and they ask themselves this question, will the world remember you when, you're, when you fall? Could it be your death means nothing at all? Is your life just one more lie? The humanist would have to say, yeah, <laughs> that's all that it is. I know it's hard for you to believe. It's hard for you to believe. Some of you especially so. But people are not going to remember the Cubs playing the World Series for forever. <laughs> they are not. I know it seems like a miracle. Can you imagine the two most hard luck franchises in the history of Major League Baseball are going to play each other in the World Series <laughs> this week, and one of them is going to have to lose, <laughs> right? Cubs, and I was watching the television show, as of course you know I would, and all of you should have been yesterday when the Cubs were playing uh, uh, yesterday, and there was a phrase at the beginning where Wrigley Field was personified. Some of you saw it. It was a beautiful thing, they did great things they can do. And I, I wrote this down because I thought I needed to have some excuse for watching this when I should be preparing a sermon, right? So, <laughs> so, and it said, Wrigley Field said, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Oh, wait, wait, that's not what I, that was not it. That was not it. That comes from, uh, that was not from the, not from the, here's what it says. I quote that, that's from the Bible. Right? Uh, oh, my goodness, that was a bad mistake. I'm glad you weren't paying very close attention or else you would have caught that. Wrigley co commercial before the game said, let's create a new memory, one we can share forever. We can't. 71 years is a long time, but it is not forever. yes. Philosophically speaking, we need to be careful that we don't just sort of assume that it's just okay just to, uh, you know, uh, do the best you can and that, that then it makes it all meaningful. Yeah. Uh, you know, anything worthwhile that we do, in my, it seems, is like rearranging the decks of the Titanic. Sooner or later, it's all going to go down anyway, right? Uh, it's just going to go down. That's the way life is. So he says, philosophy doesn't give me good answers to the meaning of life. So he said, well, I'm going to try some other things. Let me go quickly through a few other ideas before we close up. The futility of philosophy, but also the futility of pleasure. The futility of pleasure. Um, chapter 2, I don't print all this, but he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and pleasure. What use is it? Yeah. <laughs> What's the use of pleasure? Uh, uh, let's just enjoy the pleasures of life. And yet we find out that that's futility as well because pleasures don't last. And he also ascribes the pleasures, uh, the futility of, of projects or achievements. Chapter 2 and verse 4. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. Yes, I'm making these great businesses, these great projects, and yet 
What's going to happen to it when I'm all done and when, it, when, it's, when it's all gone? We see that also talked about in verses 18 to 23 of chapter 2 as well. He also speaks about the futility of possessions. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them, all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which the water I brought, male and female slaves. He had the best home in the world. But what does all of that mean? And always he ends up his phrase with like verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, it was all vanity or, or meaningless, a striving after when there was nothing to be gained. That phrase repeated again, under the sun. The futility of possessions, the futility, I would say, even of, of power. You see, if under the sun is all that there is, we are building sandcastles on the seashore of life. It may occupy our attention, but the tide will come in, and it'll be as if it never was there. You've done that. You've seen your kids do it. Don't build it there. The waves are coming up. It won't last. The truth of the matter is, if it's only under the sun, it won't last. So we see then the mirage of meaning under the sun. And throughout this book, he continues to press home this point. What is life about if this is all if this is all there is. And really, he never lets us off the hook until we get to the very end, a pointer through the abyss in the deepest of the darkness place. He says to us at the very end of this book, almost as an afterthought, in the last two verses of the book, and they're printed, I didn't print them for you, but listen to them in, uh, in the 12th chapter, the 13th and 14th verses. The end of the matter. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, secret thing, whether good or evil. He basically says, I've spent 12 chapters showing you how it is impossible to find true, meaning, fulfillment, even with all the joys and pleasures and good things that this life brings to you. And so the end of the matter, the last words of the book, as a picture, as a pointer, having depressed his subjects and perhaps ourselves as well with the futility of life, he says this is the end of the matter. Under the sun is nowhere to go. Fear God. Trust God. And keep his commandments, for God will bring every deed into judgment. Basically, he's saying, if you want to have a meaningful life, you need to look at the God who created life. That is the only way to truly find meaning of life. And so I call this last heading, the man of meaning, of meaning other the sun. The man of meaning under the sun here he speaks about God. If you want to have real meaning, you've got to look to God. But then if we fast forward all the way up to the, the, up to the New Testament, we see that the gospel writers tell us also about what God has done as well. And in the Gospel of John, which is essentially a philosophical book, it begins with these words, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. And the 14th verse, and the Logos was made flesh and lived among us. 
and we beheld his glory. Now, for us, we read it, and that word logos means, of course, word. But in the Greek time of which it was written, the logos was a philosophical idea that Greeks were talking about a lot. They were asking themselves the question, what is the reason for life? What is the, the logos for life? What is the, what is the, 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 the purpose for life? What is the reason for which we were made? And you find the reason for it, you'll know what you're supposed to be. For example, a lot of you know that I like to roast coffee. I, roast, I buy green beans and I roast them. It's one of my hobbies and I enjoy doing that. And now I'm too cheap to buy the expensive roasting equipment because a part of the reason I do this is because I'm cheap and I want good coffee for a cheap price. And I discover that you can roast coffee with a hot air popcorn popper. Those, they're all over Goodwill. You buy them for two, three bucks or four bucks, and you use it, and you can roast the beans, and instead of popcorn coming out the front, chaff comes out the top, and what's left is nicely roasted beans. It's not a scientific per se, but you think the thing is I had to keep buying popcorn poppers. You know why? They weren't made for that. <laughs> <laughs> they just weren't made for that. It's a little, you know, popcorn knows, well, operates differently in a popcorn popper than does a coffee bean. And yet I do the best that I can to do. And that's the problem with life. If we want to know what life is about, discover why it was made, what it's about. Understand the logos, the purpose. This was the Greek way of asking this question. They would say, what is the logos, the reason, the meaning? And John, in this gospel, gospel of John 1, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, he says the logos is not an idea. The logos is a person. The logos is the reason for the existence is because God in His wisdom created this world and God in His wisdom became one of us in this world. The idea is that God, the logos is not an idea, not a principle, not just a truth, not just a philosophical thought, but it's a person. The essence of what your life is about is to be in relationship with a person, the Logos, the incarnated Son of God who came and lived among us, and we beheld His glory full of grace and truth. John 1, 1 and verse four, uh, 14, uh, 14 as well. See, this Logos of God came under the Son. God didn't just stay out there separate from the world. God came to be one with us in this world, and He creates meaning for us under the sun because He is not from under the sun. He is, was in the beginning with God, and He was God. Listen to the verse in, in John 1.1 1, 1 in the typical in the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and life was the light of men. Verse 14, and the Word, the Logos, became flesh and lived among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Yes, this Word is the one, the Logos, the one who created life. Of course He knows what life is about. He invented the whole thing. He is life. We are born out of the loving relationship between God and the Father and the Holy Spirit as they birthed this world. See, the book of Ecclesiastes doesn't answer the question. It just asks us the question, what is the meaning and purpose of the life? And then it ultimately points to God 
as the ultimate purpose until we finally come to the New Testament when we see that this God that Ecclesiastes told us to fear, this God became one of us clothed in human skin. And He died for us under the sun. And the sun died as well, more or less. But ultimately, He was raised from the dead. And the Scriptures want us to see that there is futility and frustration in seeking meaning anywhere else but in relationship with God. But there is utility and fulfillment in seeking meaning with God. Yes, meaning matters. We are creatures of meaning makers. But if we're just making up our own meaning... We're as simple and foolish as the kid who builds the castle by the waves, thinking that that's going to last. It won't. And a lot of you are old enough to know that some of the things you thought would really make a difference in your life didn't. You're old enough to realize that even the things most dear to you will not last forever unless there's a God whose resurrection beyond the grave assures us that under the sun is not the end of the story. So let's find meaning in a relationship with God. Let us surrender our lives to that one who gave his life for us. Let's have prayer as we close. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so very much for creating a world of design and purpose and meaning. Thank you that this world is not here by, by an accident, but by design. Thank you for that. And thank you that you came and rescued this world and that you gave to us meaning and purpose in life so that while under the sun we may have to agree vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Under the S-O-N, sun, we can believe that life comes through Jesus Christ. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe on His name. Help us to trust in You, we pray. In Jesus' name.